Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There are certain turning points that happen which affect all of history. And one of the great under-explored turning points is what's known as the sin of the spies. The spies are the leaders of the tribes of Israel who were sent to the land of Israel in advance of the Jewish people arriving. And they were going to sort of give a report to the rest of the Jewish people about how exactly is the best way to enter the land and to conquer the land. And of course, famously, they bring back a, a terrible report and the Jewish people panic and they question God's goodness. And God says, okay, if, if you actually think I'm leading you to your destruction, if you actually think that that's what this is all about, I took you out of Egypt, I've done everything, I created the universe in order to destroy you. If that's what you think of me, then I can't do business with this generation. And so the 40-year decree of wandering in the desert comes down. And as a result, Moshe does not lead the Jewish people into the land of Israel which the rabbis teach would have been the end of days. And so all of history is altered because of this event. So that is worth exploring, don't you think? <laughs> like, what, what went wrong? What went wrong? And we're going to go deep. I want to say some things that I actually haven't found in any sources and and share those with you but but all based on the best best sources i want to explore a few things because we have the whole idea of yehoshua who is moshe's successor who actually is going to lead the jewish people into the land of israel he's going to get a name change from hoshea to yehoshua what's that all about the letter yud is going to be added to his name and also to discuss this whole idea of tzitzis, we get tzitzis at the end. And let's just begin with a couple of general ideas to discover what the actual sin of the spies was, okay? So, so it's important to be grounded in sort of like the classic Torahs before we go further. So I heard Reb Shlomo say something very amazing which is that the spies looked into the land and they saw a tremendously good land. And then, and these are Reb Shlomo's words, they looked into the Jewish people's heavenly bank account and they saw that we did not have the merit to enter into the land. In other words, the land was so good so, you know, it's, it's funny because sometimes people, you know, they want to be humble and they say, you know, I really don't have the merit. Well, you know something? Sometimes you actually don't have the merit. <laughs> you know, it's not just a, a turn of phrase. I'm not worthy. Yeah, you know, actually you aren't worthy. You know, that's a real thing. But what Reb Shlomo adds that the spies missed was God wanted to give it to us as a gift. And this is a very, very important piece of information in terms of going through life, which is 
God can give you something as a gift. Even if you aren't on the level, you can still receive it as a gift and you can still ask for it as a gift. Which, if you think about it, is a, is a very, very beautiful thing. Because God can do anything. God can do absolutely anything. Now, I'll tell you something which, in my opinion, is one of the scariest stories I ever heard in my life. And I heard again this from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar. He said, the spies looked into the land and they saw rivers of blood coming out of it. Every tragedy, every horrible thing that was ever going to happen to the Jewish people. But they didn't see one thing, which is that all of this was going to happen because of them. That's chilling. That's absolutely chilling. Now there's another famous opinion which I heard in the name of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is that the Jews didn't want to go into the land of Israel because they had a great setup in the desert. The manna was coming down from heaven. They had the well of Miriam. They had the water wherever they were traveling in the desert. They had this miraculous well of water. They had the clouds of glory, the Ananiah covered, which was miraculous in their own way. Like the clouds were bulletproof. If, if enemies shot arrows at the clouds, the arrows would bounce off. The clouds, believe it or not, actually dry cleaned people's clothing. That's, that's what the rabbis teach, that they, they washed your clothing, these clouds. There were also clouds under our feet. They killed scorpions and snakes. And, of course, they protected us from the sun. But, even more importantly, we had Moshe Rabbeinu in the desert, and we had the ability to absorb the Torah and to learn the Torah in an uninterrupted way without having to go to work, so to speak. And why would we ever want to leave that? That level of closeness to God. Now, there's a bigger story being told here in terms of just the context of the Jews going into the land. And let me just flesh that out just so we have context for this whole discussion. Now, remember, the Jews leave the land of Egypt. Fifty days later, we get the Torah. Forty days after getting the Torah is the sin of the golden calf. And then we stay encamped at Mount Sinai for one calendar year, during which time we build the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert. Now, this Parsha, Parsha Shalach, the sin of the spies, picks up at the epic, epic moment where the Jewish people are now traveling from Mount Sinai into the land of Israel, led by Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, so this is it. This is the big push. We're going into the land. Remember, the idea of 40 years of wandering was never part of the plan. Okay, so now we're going in. Now, in terms of the broader context, we had such a good thing going in terms of this supernatural existence that we were leading in the desert. Again, all of our food and protection and water and everything was being provided for. Plus, we were learning Torah on the most exalted, exalted level. Now, in entering the land of Israel, the laws of nature were going to reassert themselves we were going to have to plow the land, work the land, 
We were going from this supernatural existence into the natural order again. That's another epic transition that's all in the background of all of these discussions. Now, we have this number in terms of Jewish thoughts, and that's the number 91. 91, of course, is the gematria of two names of God. One is Yudke Vavke, and the other is Aleph Dalad Nunin Yud, also called Adnus. But basically what it means is God, two names of God, meaning heaven and earth, meaning God without boundaries and God within boundaries. Of course, there's only one God, but it's two aspects of how God manifests in his infinite mode and then operating within the finite realms. And so these two names of God add up to the number 91, which interestingly is also the word amen. Amen is also gematria 91. Let's say I make a blessing over an apple. I'm saying this apple came from God and his blessing has become manifest within the material realm. And then you say, Amen, which is the idea of God of heaven and earth. So Amen has a lot of holiness to it. But the idea was the Jewish people were going to be the Amen. In other words, we were about to take this supernatural existence of living in the desert and fuse it into the natural order which is this idea of heaven and earth coming together. That's what was taking place. And we sort of stopped that integration from happening. And of course, when the Jewish people enter into the land of Israel, it doesn't all just become the natural order because we have all of the mitzvahs to do. And the mitzvahs themselves defy the natural order and bring heaven down into earth. So... It's not just that we were going to enter into the land and leave heaven aside. We were going to integrate heaven and earth, the Jewish people themselves, and through the Torah mitzvot. That that is what was going on. Okay. So now we have to get back to the spies. Because everyone kind of has the same idea about the spies. And I certainly did for years and years. And I would say... You know, if I were venture to guess, the overwhelming, overwhelming, overwhelming majority of people who take these ideas very seriously and learn these ideas think the following, okay? I'm going to say what everybody thinks. How could the Jews not gone into the land? How could the Jews not have trusted God? God did so many miracles. God did the ten plagues. God asserted his total mastery over the natural order, revealed his existence in the most amazing open way over and over again, split the sea, drowned our enemies, gave us the Torah, rained food down from heaven. How on earth, if God tells us to go into the land of Israel, are we not going into the land of Israel? So, this is everybody's question. And I want to address this question. But, I want to make the question 
in a way, even stronger. Now, I'm a writer by profession. So I'm very sensitive to story. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the primary storyline that the five books are telling you? The five books of Moses, the Chumash, the Torah. What is the primary storyline being told? Now, the answer is very clear. And I'm not talking about what is the major theme of the Torah or what is the most important message of the Torah. I'm not addressing any of those things. I'm talking about the simple storyline. And the answer is, it's the story of God bringing the Jewish people into the land of Israel. That's what it is. And I'll give you a further support for that, which is if you look at the Rashi, the very first Rashi, of the entire Torah. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Rashi asks the question, why is the Torah beginning with the creation of the world? If the Torah is, on one level, a book of mitzvot, right, commandments, why not begin with the first commandment? Very logical question. And the answer that he gives is, is really super fascinating. He says that in the future, the non-Jewish nations are going to say that the Jewish people stole the land of Israel from them and that we're robbers. And as such, the Torah begins with God creating the entire universe because the creator of the universe can do whatever he wants with the universe. And if he wants to give the Jewish people the land of Israel, which he does want to do and has done, then that's up to him. In other words, God gave us the land, so the land belongs to us, and God created the universe. And it's as simple as that. It's our land. Now, the very, very first verse in the entire Torah is about the Jews going into the land of Israel. There it is. Couldn't be more simple. Believe it or not, I saw Rabbi Wolfson pointed this out, Shlita, that the very first time God speaks to Abraham, the very first time God speaks to Yitzchak, and the very first time God speaks to Yaakov, he gives them the land of Israel. Isn't that interesting? It's the first thing that God says to each of the Avos. The very first thing. Okay. Then, of course... The book of Exodus, Sefer Shmos, is all about Moshe taking the Jews out of slavery and bringing them to Israel. And then Vayikra is all about the building of the Mishkan, right, on the way to Israel. Bamidbar is all about what happens on the way to Israel. And Devarim, the last book of the Torah, is a recapitulation of the entire Torah on the border of entering Israel. So there you have it. Given that, listen to this question. How could it be that at this most epic moment, they didn't know what story they were in the middle of? We didn't know that we were the stars at the most climactic moment of the story 
that started with the creation of the universe. We were supposed to say, no, we can do it. God can do anything. This is the whole mission. We're going in. That's what we were supposed to say. Now, let's make this personal for a moment. Do you know in your own life what story you're in the middle of? I think every single person has to ask themselves that question. What story am I in the middle of telling right now? Or what story that's being told through me am I in the middle of? So how did they get it wrong? So I want to give you what I believe to be the answer, and then we're going to go deeper. But this is already pretty deep. I think that we saw ourselves, right? Because when we talk about the Jews in the desert, it's not they, it's we. It's not you, it's me. Okay? This is all of us. This is all of us. I think that the reason why we were able to say, no, we're not going in, was more than just a lack of belief, although we're going to explore that more deeply in a moment. But our self-image was flawed. I think that we saw ourselves as the people who left Egypt. Now, I'm using the past tense very, very deliberately here. Who are you? Oh, I'm part of the generation that left Egypt. Who are you? I'm part of the generation, again, past tense, who received the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now, those were such epic events. There is no wonder that people could have defined themselves over something that happened in the past. But what about the future? You see, all of us in life can't just be running from something. We have to be running to something. It's not enough to run from something. You can't say, hey, I'm making so much progress. I'm even less of that person that I used to be. (laughs) I'm doing so well. (laughs) That is not enough. It's not enough. You have to be running towards something, something different. So because their image was just the people who left Egypt, past tense, who got the Torah at Mount Sinai, past tense, they were not looking forward. They didn't realize they were the generation that was going into Israel. Forward, forward. Now, with that in mind, listen to this. Moshe Rabbeinu, in order to save Yehoshua, whose name at that point was Hoshea, in order to save him, because he's one of the spies, and remember, Hoshea never left the side of Moshe Rabbeinu. He was with him constantly, right? He was his greatest, greatest, greatest student. He puts a yud in front of his name and makes him Yehoshua. So it came to me, in Hebrew grammar, when you put the letter Yud in front of a word, it turns it into future tense. Do you understand? He was blessing Yehoshua 
that Yeshua should look forward. That he shouldn't just be blinded by the past. That he should understand that as long as we're in this world, you and I, all of us together, we have something left to accomplish. Until our last breaths, we're not done. That's the idea of this Yud, this future tense being added at the front of his name to move forward. And of course, he's the one who takes us into Israel. What a Yud. Wouldn't you like a Yud like that? Now listen to this. In this week's Parsha, in this same Parsha that we've been discussing throughout, the same Parsha that Moshe gives Hoshea this letter Yud and makes him Yehoshua, guess what? There is a large letter Yud in the Torah scroll. Every single letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a small version and a large version throughout Tanakh. Where is the large Yud? Right here in this Parsha. Do you know what this says to me? This says to me that God is giving us all of this letter Yud. It's not just Yehoshua that got the Yud from Moshe. Hashem with this large Yud in this Torah portion is giving every single one of us the letter Yud. And why? So that we're not just looking to the past. We're not, as the Kutzka Rebbe says, living the rest of our lives as imitations of the people that we used to be. But that we're breaking new ground, creating new goals, not stopping. So after the Jewish people give the bad report, and basically, they, they think God is here to destroy us, right? That God's not good. God doesn't mean well for us. And I'll just tell you something just absolutely central. If you want to believe in God like a Jew, it takes more than just believing that there's an almighty creator who gave us the Torah, and that every letter of the Torah is from heaven. It takes more than that if you want to believe in God like a Jew. You also have to believe that God is good. If you don't believe that God is good, you might believe in something, but it's not the God of Abraham. It's not the God of Moshe. When we say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, it's it's not that God. There are a lot of people who are quote-unquote very religious, and you know what they believe in? An almighty dictator. That's not Hashem. Rabbi David Aaron often points out that the, the holiest name of God, Yudke Vavke, is a name that essentially means love. Okay, it's not a direct translation, but that is the essence of that name. If you don't understand the goodness of God, like I say, you might be way more religious than I am, but in terms of your belief system, it's not Judaism. Okay. So now, after this 40-year decree of wandering in the desert that that generation can't go in. It's going to die out in the desert. 
God gives us two commandments. Now, what do you think these commandments are? This is, in my opinion, fabulous. You ready? One is the mitzvah of nesachim, which is wine, the wine offering in the Beis HaMikdash, which can only be done in the land of Israel. <laughs> and also the mitzvah of challah, which also can only be done in the land of Israel. In other words, to all of those people in the desert who hear this decree and, and they think to, the, to themselves, I'm never getting into the land. So Hashem anticipating that that might be the thought of the people gives this mitzvah that can only be done in the land. Do you understand how it's this incredible divine reassurance that you're absolutely getting into the land? And remember the word mitzvah, the root of the word mitzvah is tzav, which is connection. So in other words, this ironclad connection between the Jews in the desert and the land of Israel where they will perform these mitzvot as we did is being laid out. Now, based on that, listen to what the Beis Yaakov says. He defines the word hope. Right? Hope is probably the most precious commodity in life. Right? This is more elevated, more valuable than gold, is hope. So he says, do you know what this word hope, which is tikva, do you know what hope is, the mechanics of hope? It's when you get tied to a future that's beyond you. Because the nature of despair is that it buries you. And you think that all that there is is what I have right now, which is ruins. And the hava mina, the, the thought that there can be anything beyond the situation that I'm in, much less that I'm tied to something beyond the situation that I'm in, doesn't even occur to a person unless they have hope. So the word hope actually means in Hebrew, there's another word which shares this same word, hope, tikva, and the base Yaakov says, you know what word that is? Cord as in a rope, because the nature of hope is it ties you to a place beyond you. Like, you know when someone's drowning in the ocean and they throw, they throw like this cord their way? Hold on, grab the cord. That's hope. That's literally the word hope. And then the Beis Yaakov proves it. Because in the Haftorah, the spies are the next set of spies, many years later. Yehoshua sends Kalev and Pinchas to spy out the land. And they hide out at Rachav's dormitory. And they make a pact with her, which is she's going to protect them. And the sign that where she lives, that, that when the Jews come in to conquer the land, is that she puts out a cord outside of her window, this red string, 
And it's the word tikvah. This cord, this rope is the word tikvah. So that's the rope tying us to the future. And these mitzvahs say the Beis Yaakov that we get after the 40-year decree of wandering the desert. That's the hope, that's the cord binding us to the future. Now, isn't it interesting that this same Parsha, which has us wandering, ends with the mitzvah of tzitzis. What are tzitzis if not cords? <laughs> right? Just like God is giving each one of us the letter Yud, pointing us to the future, we're also getting mamish cords to hold on to. Okay. By the way, since we're mentioning Rachav, she was one of the most beautiful people, the Gemara says, that ever, that ever lived. And they say that she ended up marrying Yehoshua. Isn't that amazing? Amazing, amazing. And not only that, but I noticed something very interesting. And then I want to go deeper about the spies, but, but listen to this. Very, very interesting Rashi. And, and the reason why I'm bringing it up right now is because it's in the Torah portion and Rachav says it in the Haftorah as well. So, so I just want to point it out. So when the spies come back, they begin in the following way. It's a good land. And then they say every evil thing. Now listen to this. Rashi points out Every lie, every big lie begins with the truth. They start off by saying it's a good land. This is just me talking right now. I think what happens is when you tell the truth at the beginning, the person's heart opens up and then you stick in all the lies. Right? Right? The mechanics, the mechanics of the big lie. And if you look at Rachav, she's now doing it to save the lives of Kalev and Pinchas. The authorities come to her and they say, hey, we have a report that spies entered into the land and that they came to you. And she says, now meanwhile, she's hiding them, okay? She says, yes, they did come to me. There's the truth. But then they left. There's the lie. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? You see it in both places. You see it in both places. When you're dealing with demagogues, be on guard. Because they may begin by making sense. But then don't just check out and say, okay, well, they're making sense. Now I'll just <laughs> do whatever they say. Continue to listen. Continue to listen. Continue to listen. And continue to be discriminating. Because the Eight Sahara is very inventive. And thank God we have what we call Torah Emet, the Torah of truth. And if someone tries to change the Torah, just keep on walking. Okay. Now, I told you I wanted to go deeper. 
in terms of the spies. And I want to give you a, a way of understanding it that was new to me, came to me over Shabbos, and uh, here it is. It started with a conversation that I was having with some people on the Parsha. And we were saying, you know, kind of what went wrong. We say the whole history of the world was leading up to this moment. How could they have blown it? And I said, because they're human beings. All of us are human beings. We make mistakes. And then that led to a further conversation. Everybody says there were 10 plagues and we got the Torah Mount Sinai and the sea split. How could we not have believed? But now let's add one more extremely relevant factor. How about the fact that these people were slaves in the land for a minimum of 210 years doing soul-crushing labor? And according to the accounts, it may be more than 210 years. The exile was 400 years. But at least 210 of those years was soul-crushing labor. Now all of a sudden, maybe we've got a different view of the people. Now, I want to give an analogy, and I'm sure that this is a very imperfect analogy, so forgive me, but I'm trying to make a point. Imagine a person who grows up in a home with an abusive father, and at a certain point, the father wants to kind of do tshuva. So he takes the kid out for dinner, then another occasion for lunch, then another occasion on a vacation, another occasion gives that person a, a very beautiful present, does a number of sincere, very sincere, beautiful things to try to repair the relationship. And at the end of those instances, the child turns to the father and says, but what about the first 18 years? So did the Jewish people experience miracles and salvations? 100%. But trauma is real. And trauma lasts. And, you know, if you don't know, there's a whole field now in science called epigenetics. And epigenetics is all about how trauma is actually genetically passed to the next generation. And so... When, when you think about children of the Holocaust and, or even grandchildren of the Holocaust and you say, and you say what's your deal? What, you grew up in America or you grew up wherever. You didn't go through the Holocaust. What are you all so freaked out about? And, and they don't understand that this trauma is actually genetically passed on to the next generations. I also want to say just in general that I think that people, white people, have a, a, a really 
total lack of understanding that within the black community, on this level of epigenetics, the, the trauma of slavery is something that the present generation still very much live with. And I think that that is completely not appreciated at all in terms of the lasting effects that slavery still exerts on the black community. And so this trauma that the Jewish people experienced, you see, let me, let me say it this way. What does a slave not have control over? The decisions over their own life. What would someone who would leave slavery and go to freedom want to assert? Decisions over their own life. When they're being told you're being led into a land by very distinguished people where you're going to get wiped down, at that point, I think psychologically, it would be understandable if I wanted to assert some sort of control over my own life. Okay, now I want to tell you something super, super deep. Okay, now we're going to get into some new ideas. So the Me'a Shaloch, the Ishbitzer Rebbe, says the following, that it was always the plan, it was always the plan for the Jews to be in the desert for 40 years. It was always the plan. In other words, on one level, remember, things are functioning on multiple levels at the same time. So are you saying that we didn't have free choice? We did have free choice. Are we saying that it was always the plan that we were going to wander for 40 years? It was always the plan. Are these two things absolutely irreconcilable? They're in, irreconcilable in this dimension. In this dimension where two opposites co can't coexist, they're irreconcilable. But there are multiple dimensions to reality. And in those multiple dimensions and those higher dimensions, What's impossible for us is completely, totally possible, where we can make decisions that directly affect us, and God had a different plan altogether anyway. And both of those things are not contradictions. So God always wanted us to be in the desert for 40 years. And now I want to say the following, which is why? Because he wanted to show us love and chesed to repair the relationship that we were still suffering from and to restore the trust and for us to know that he was a loving God and a good God despite the fact of our years in slavery. And now I want to say something maybe even deeper than that, which is that that generation that he, that he did that for wasn't going to enter into the land. But that, God forbid, they shouldn't leave this world without knowing who God is and how much God loves them. But that God then wanted to raise a brand new generation from scratch who hadn't gone through the trauma of slavery. And to raise them up in this supernatural oasis in the desert with all of the love 
so that that generation could go into the land knowing viscerally the goodness of God. So I, I heard Rabbi Green explain one time that if a person doesn't fix their mitos, if they don't, if they don't rectify their personality, that they'll never understand what the Torah is actually saying. So I'll give you an example. Like when it comes to the part where God destroys the city of Sodom, Sodom, you know, if you're like, yeah, wipe them out. That what, what that is, is that's, that's the person projecting their own anger on the text instead of receiving what the text is actually saying. So, so in order to understand pshat, meaning to say, to, in order to understand what the Torah is actually saying, we have to be in balance. We have to be balanced. And what I'm, the reason why I genuinely believe that God extended our stay in the desert was in order to heal the relationship is because all understandings of the Torah have to come from the understanding of God's goodness. And if you're not beginning with the understanding of God's goodness, you won't properly understand what the Torah is saying. And remember, the Torah is endlessly deep. So you don't even have a chance of understanding what the Torah is saying unless you begin with a true foundation of God's goodness. So I have to thank my friend Chaim for sending me this. It's from Kahelis Rabbah, chapter 3, verse 11. And it shows you that this, this idea that it was God's intention all along that the Jews should stay in the desert for 40 years... This is not just from the Ishbitzer Rebbe, that this is actually grounded in the Medrash itself. So I'll read for you. Rav Huna said in the name of Rabbi Yitzchak Bar Marion, at the time when they departed from Egypt, the Israelites were worthy to enter the land immediately, but the trees were ancient from the days of Noah. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, shall I bring the Israelites into a wasteland? Rather, I will take them on a circuitous path through the wilderness for 40 years so that the Canaanites will rise and chop down the old ones and plant new ones so the Israelites would enter the land and find it filled with blessings. Isn't that something? I saw this after I gave the talk, after I shared all these ideas, but it shows you, it shows you that God meant good from the outset. Just like I said, if you want to understand the Torah, you must understand everything from the point of view of God's love. Okay. We're heading into another period into the year. And with that in mind, I want to conclude with the following. We've been on this awesome ride from Tubishvat to Purim, to Pesach. And now we're entering into the month of Tammuz. The month of Tammuz is very, very, very deep. Every single month has a different arrangement of God's holiest name, the Yudke Vavke. 
The arrangement of the name of Hashem for Tammuz is Yudke Vavke backwards. The name of God Yudke Vavke shows on love, rachamim, chesed, but when it's backwards, it shows on din and judgment. Now, originally, the Ari teaches the month of Adar, which is the last month of the year, had the backward spelling of God's name. Which makes sense if you think that the first month of the year, the month of Nisan, which is when we leave Egypt and it's open revelations of miracles and everything like that, if any month should have the straight spelling of God's name, because remember there are 12 permutations in 12 months, it should be the month of Nisan. And in fact, it is the month of Nisan that has the straight spelling. So then if you just think logically, well then if that's the first month has the straight spelling, the last month, Adar, should have the reverse spelling. Well, that's not the case. Adar doesn't have the reverse spelling. But listen to what the Ari says. An amazing, 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 amazing Torah. He said, you know what? Originally, it did have the reverse spelling. And then that makes sense because that's the month that the decree of the extermination of the Jewish people came down. And that was going to happen in the month of Adar. But now listen to this. Because of the tshuva of the Jewish people and especially the prayers of Mordechai and Esther, the whole spiritual DNA of the month was reconfigured. Look at how powerful the prayers of Israel are. Well, that reverse spelling, that reverse energy had to go somewhere. So it landed in Tammuz. Tammuz, of course, is the beginning of the three weeks that leads to the destruction of the Beis Migdash. But let me tell you something. Anyone who's done some landscaping knows this. I've done very little, but I, this much I know. If you hire someone to cut down a tree, that's one thing. But the real work is they won't, if you just say cut down a tree, they'll cut down the tree and they'll leave. And you'll look at the trunk that's still in the ground and you're like, hey, what about the trunk? And they're like, you just told me to cut down the tree. To uproot a trunk of a tree, that's a very expensive job. That's a whole different job, right? And that's true, by the way. So to uproot a trunk and get all the roots of a tree out is a major, major job. So just in terms of visualizing this, I think this reverse spelling of Hashem's name, Mordechai and Esther and the tshuva of the Jewish people, we managed to uproot that trunk in Adar. In other words, that major work was already done. Now, it had to go somewhere, so it's in Tammuz. But we can change it around. We can reconfigure it, and we've got a giant head start because the major work has already been done. And I've said it, I've said it before, but we'll just end on this point. A lot of people think that, wait a second, you know, we have all these holidays and then we just had Shavuos and it's all so good and then all of a sudden it's like the car is like screeching to a left turn with Tammuz, like an Av, like what, what is going on? 
And I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that's what it is at all. And so I want everybody just to think about this, which is, you know, can you imagine having a relationship with the king? Wow, you know the king? I, yeah, I, I actually know the king. Wow. You, you have like a, di- a direct relationship with the king? Yeah, yes I do. Wow. Then what if I told you the king was coming to your house? The king is coming to my house? King's coming to your house, yeah. Can I tell you what I think is great advice? And I would 100% take my own advice if the king is coming to my house. Clean up the house. <laughs> like, you don't want the king to walk in and they're like socks on the floor. Because it's not nice to the king. It's just not nice. Right? You've got like half-trunk bottles of water, like littering all the counters of your house. Like just, how about gather them up? (laughs) Just straighten up your house. So the idea is, what is this idea of judgment? Like we had all these parties, all these holidays. Now we're getting into the, the, the category of judgment, Tammuz, reverse, Yudke, Vavke. So what I'm trying to tell you is this. It's because the king is not getting more distant. It's because the king is coming closer. In other words, it's, 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 but when the king comes into your house, there's more of an expectation that the house is going to be in order. So while superficially, it might be a sign of judgment. Really, it's just a further sign of closeness. And that's where we're heading, okay? And so Hashem should bless us that we should really get our houses in order so that we can receive Him in the most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.